Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good, if I can wait. Edition, as we gear up for the start of the regular season coming up a week from Sunday against Mike Zimmer's Minnesota Vikings. Coming up on the pod, Dave Lapham joins me to answer the Ask Lap questions that you submitted on Twitter. Then, I'll quiz the coordinators. Not with X's and O's, we do plenty of that. But I've got a few offbeat questions for Brian Callahan, Lou Anarumo, and Darren Simmons. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since traveling trophies in college football. The 8th-ranked UC Bearcats opened the season on Saturday against the Miami Redhawks in the 125th Battle for the Victory Bell. They've been playing for the right to hold on to the bell since the 1890s. One side of the bell is painted black with white numbers showing Cincinnati's victories, while the other side is white with red numbers showing Miami's victories. It's a cool tradition and one of many like it in college football. TCU and SMU battle for the Iron Skillet. Minnesota and Michigan compete for the Little Brown Jug. And Mississippi State and Ole Miss duke it out for the Golden Egg. It's part of the fun of college football. Now, let's get to my conversation with Dave Lapham, including a bunch of Ask Lap questions that you submitted on Twitter. Were there any roster moves that you found surprising or particularly interesting? Nothing that was, uh, you know, really surprising. Um, obviously, there was a, an indication during the course of training camp that Michael Jordan was having some consistency issues, which, you know, had kind of plagued him throughout his career, really. I mean, uh, you see snaps where it's like, wow, whew, big, strong, can come off the ball, can move people, <clears throat> be a real factor. And then there'd be snaps that'd be like, where did that come from kind of thing. So that... Um, that north and south pole inconsistency is is something that coaches are fearful of. You know, you don't know what you're going to get. So I think the biggest thing that coaches look for is, is intelligence and then, you know, know what to expect out of a player on a snap-by-snap basis. And in a couple of cases, that was probably a factor in the elimination of, uh, you know, of them making the 53-man roster. The biggest surprise to me was the absence of Trenton Irwin. I thought he was a slam dunk lock to be on the 53-man roster. I thought he was the number five wide receiver. As we do this recording, there's a spot available on the practice squad. It might go to him if he clears waivers. It sounds like that's a possibility. But, man, I thought he was good to go on the 53. Yeah, I think it's the special teams you know, aspect is so important. Stanley Morgan is such a huge factor on special teams. Mike Thomas is such a huge factor on special teams that when you get down to that, that number, you know, the, the five, six, seven, however many you're going to keep wide receivers, that um, it, it's a combination of how many snaps you're going to get from a player, not only at the line of scrimmage offensively or defensively, but add in special team snaps and who gives you the largest total. And that's where, you know, I guess he slid, obviously. He slid down the totem pole a little bit because Stanley Morgan and, and Mike Thomas, are their core special teams guys for Darren. So 
um, it becomes a, a big part of that evaluation process for sure. All right, let's get to some Ask Lap questions that were submitted by fans. Question number one comes from somebody named Trey. Oddly enough, his question is about Trey Waynes. His question is, is Trey Waynes' third year of his contract a player or team option, and do you sense any frustration within the organization regarding his availability for the past two years? I can answer the first part. There isn't a player or a team option. It was a three-year deal, however structured in such a way that they could get out of it at the end of this year with minimal cap damage. It would be $5 million in dead cap money. So if things don't work out at some point this year, they could move on at the end of the season. Now on to the second part of the question. Do you sense any frustration? Yeah, that's going to be a, a, a big factor in the evaluation process, I think, of do they get out of it or do they go for another year. It's it's unbelievable how stricken he's been with respect to injury. It's it's, it's amazing. I, I think the, you'd have to dig really hard to try to find a player that has been compensated at a higher level for fewer snaps. I mean, I, I don't think there is one. I think he may be the, the most in team history. And, and um, you know, a lot of that Bryant, a wide receiver a few years back, I know they paid a lot of money and he never played a snap. He never even really got through a training camp. Um, but that's, that's the variable that you, you have no control over as a player or, or an organization is the injury factor. And, man, once a, once a guy seems to be <laughs> hit by it, it's like how do, you, how do you work your way out of it? And then there are cases where we're going to be injured for a couple of years and go on and have a great career. So what are you looking at? You just don't know. Uh, if you had a crystal ball, that would be great. I guess it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out first and foremost, even for this year. I mean, he's he's got a hamstring issue. Uh, he's had both hamstrings that have acted up on him. Um, and, and, man, sometimes when those start, they, they linger. and they, they nag and they nag away. Will he be able to get healthy and then go out and just play and play, you know, 14 games of the 17-game season? potentially and then then you'll be in a in a different evaluation mode obviously than you are right now because right now you don't know what he can do at at this stage uh of the relationship you don't know what he can do other than rehab you know (laughs) rehab from surgery rehab from uh hamstring issues that's that's all you've been able to determine uh other than that it's so the level of frustration has to be high Mm -hmm. not just for the organization for him too i mean he's not happy about it and there's no two ways a guy hopes to be injured as much as Trey Waynes has been injured. There's absolutely no way in hell. And I thought he looked like the guy that they were hoping he would be in training camp. He and Awuja were both performing very well at practice. I agree. He's long. He's got some strength. Um, he's got you know athletic ability. He can uh, change direction. I, I think he's a. I think he's a solid. A solid guy at the cornerback position, but you know, again, when he, when will he be able to line up there on a consistent basis and and show those abilities on a snap by snap by snap basis? Question number two comes from Alexander: Are the losses of Osai, Sample, and Waynes a big problem that hasn't really been fixed? I think I think the edge rush position is still. If I had to pick a weakness on the roster, that that that's it. And they're still trying to address it. I, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, when they traded for B.J. Hill, they were trying to find a defensive end and couldn't put a deal together. And even you know, fourth and fifth defensive ends have value. So 
couldn't come to an agreement if there were any inkling of an agreement happening at the defensive end position. Uh, there was a trade at, at front for defensive end before the Bengals did trade for, for B.J. Hill. So I thought, well, you know, the league, there, there has been a, a trade uh, consummated and documented here. Maybe the Bengals will be able to follow suit, but couldn't quite put it together. So uh, they're still looking, you know, still bringing guys in off the waiver wire. Um, the guys are here and and cut and brought back to the practice squad like Noah Spence. So they're, they're still in a mode of trying to build that, uh, that edge rush position up, but it's unfortunate. They drafted four defensive or four edge rush guys in the last two drafts, and not many of them are making the dance here for the, for the beginning of the football season, and that, that's got to be a source of frustration. You know, whether, whether it's a, a meniscus that has to be sutured or you know a shoulder that has a labrum issue that on on injury reserve for a short period of time, it's it's varied. It's for the year. It's for three weeks. It's for six weeks. It's for whatever the case may be. But boy, every every guy that was drafted seems to be sprinkling. Those names are sprinkled all over the injury list. From Coach Queez, with Geo gone, will this be the season Joe Mixon gets more involved in the passing game? I think I think Joe Mixon is going to get a lot of work. Yeah, I do. I think I think Joe is uh, capable of being a three-down back, um, but I do think that Samaj P. Ryan can give him a blow, you know, uh, and Chris Evans can also do the same thing as a as a receiving, you know, running back. But again, you get into those second and third and long situations. Blitz pickup, pass protection becomes vitally important, and that's the that's the final step for Chris Evans to show the coaches that I'm uh, I am more than adequate as a as a pass protector in, in blitz pickup um, Joe Mixon will do that you know Joe will stick his nose in there and, and get dirty and I, I think we are going to see a lot of Joe Mixon particularly early in the season question from Derek how huge of an impact did the addition of Frank Pollock have on the performance of the offensive line in the preseason, only giving up one sack, and on that play, the ball was snapped early, and the guys weren't really even trying to block. Yeah, I mean, the, the guys, that's a bad situation when the center forgets to snap count and snaps to the count early, and you're still in your stationary position. Those guys are blowing past you. That's a bad mm-hmm. feeling. Been there. It's not a good feeling. It's not a very comforting feeling at all. Um, so I, I think the guys really did buy into uh, buy into Frank Pollock, all, everything about him. They bought into him as a as a coach, as a former player, as a person, his techniques, um, how he pr- how he conducts practice, the level of intensity, the level of focus, um, the grind of practice, the conditioning aspect of practice. The thing I like about Frank's practice is he gets a lot of sneaky conditioning in. Like they're not running sprints as such, at the, but they're running a lot from drill to drill, and he has them on the move. It's, there's no walking. They're running. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Frank utilizes every last second he can possibly utilize uh, to, to his advantage and his players' advantage in terms of trying to get better at practice. And I think the players responded to it, uh, both mentally, physically, spiritually, you know, every way you can. I, they, they, they are all in there buying what Frank Pollock is selling, and he's, it's not being sold at a sale price. I need to add some sneaky conditioning to my lifestyle. <laughs> All right, next question comes from Bangalorean. Help me understand what our offensive line depth looks like. I fear we are one injury away from a potential hole. It's young. You know, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's a young group. Um, but 
again, you have to trust that Frank Pollock knows what he's doing. Um, I think, I think that that Frank um, understands maturity and understands when the, the player doesn't necessarily have the maturity. I think that was his biggest problem with Michael Jordan. And immaturity can show itself in many ways. Uh, and a way that it can show itself is the game not being important enough as such. You know, it's a little, in, little immature in that regard. Um, I, I, I think that he, he probably feels like he's got to work with Fred in that regard a little bit. But Fred's got immense physical potential. Um, Isaiah Prince is a, is a, a Frank Pollock feel-good story basically in training camp how he responded to Frank and Frank I, I think what's going on with a lot of these guys and then you know you talk about the young guys Hill at center uh, Carmen at, at, you know at guard and and Deontay Smith was talk about maturity in a, in a positive way Deontay Smith carries himself like a six-year veteran I mean that's that's his I think that's one of his biggest intangibles one of his biggest strengths is this guy gets it and and he shows you that he gets it in in a lot of different ways, so I I wouldn't I wouldn't be all Wang Chunged if I had to put Deontay Smith in the game. Uh, Jackson Carmen, he's getting there. I, there's a maturity factor there as well. Hill to me, really is solid. I I think he's a pretty pretty good player at the center position. I think he'd line up at guard as well. So I I think there's. I think there's enough depth. It's 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 very inexperienced depth, and that could be the concern that the questioners, you know, were referencing and, and concerned about. And I can understand that. You just have to have to have faith that Frank Pollock knows that these players are capable of going in there and handling it um, mentally and physically. And there has to be a trust between coach and player and player and coach. It has to be both ways. And I think that's what's going on between Frank and these offensive linemen. As long as Trey Hill is healthy, because that's the question mark, who is your backup center if his groin injury lingers into the start of the season? Yeah, he's got a hip flexor, and that's, you know, right right in the front of your, your abdomen to your leg upper leg area. It's kind of like right in there. Um, so he's uh, the, obviously, in my mind, they must not think it's too severe. I don't think they would have pulled the, the trigger on the Billy Price trade if Trey Hopkins had been dinged up in his three snaps. Because remember, you know you can protect Joe. You can you know you can control the narrative and protect Joe from any kind. But Trey Trey's in there, hucking and bucking in the running game, and you know trying knocking heads uh, around and and uh, and in pass protection, you know taking some severe uh, putting some severe stress on that knee. So if for some reason it didn't work out for him. Or, or Trey Hill had a significant injury, I don't think in, in, in my wildest imagination they would have traded Billy Price. And they must feel pretty good about it. We'll see. Question from Grant. Who impressed you the most during training camp and preseason? Boy, who impressed me the most? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I, w- I would have to say Deontay Smith kind of came out of nowhere, in my mind, in my eyes. I, it, he played... You know, East Carolina, what, what level of football did he play on a snap-by-snap basis down there? I know he had a really good senior bowl, and that's, that's kind of a, that's an indicator, you know, that he's, he's not over his head. So if you're not over your head at the senior bowl, that, that's, a, that's a good omen. Uh, and he came in here, and, and I'm not saying he'd lit it up every single day at practice. Like, Whoa, look at Deontay Smith. But the thing, the thing that I always look for 
with uh, with players is when it goes badly, how long does it take for it to turn back around again? Anything more than a snap, you're going to have trouble in the NFL. I mean, you're going to have selective amnesia. You have to like, boom, it's over. You can't let one bad play turn into two or five bad plays in a row. So to me, when I'm watching guys, I look at that, and it's like if, if a guy has a horrible rep at practice, okay, let's see what happens. Oh, man, Deontay's moved on. Or in the game, oh, man, he got knocked on his ass. Let's see what happens. Oh, well, he's moved on. And and then if you see guys, they'll have a great play. And, uh, what's going on? And then another one, eh, what's going on? And then a couple of great ones. And then the, uh, that's, that's when you say, eh, I'm not sure about that guy. I'm not sure how much I can trust that dude. But if you have a guy that bounces back mentally and physically right away, I think that's a huge factor in the evaluation process. The easy answer to the who impressed you most question was Evan McPherson. Oh, true. My guy, though, would be Chidabe Awuje. I think he looks like a legit quality starting cornerback, uh, second-round draft pick type guy, which is what he was by Dallas five years ago. Yeah, I think, I think he's going to have a big year. I think if I had to pick a position group, that had the earliest impact on me and then continued it would be the secondary. But then it started to get, you know, sprinkled and dotted with injury. Mm-hmm. And it's like, now, you know, oh, geez, they're not all out there. And some practices, there were as many as three guys that, you know, that weren't, weren't available. Um, and there, there was a, a major line of demarcation. I mean, there were guys and then <laughs> there weren't. <laughs> and we saw when uh, Miami put 15 points on the board in the final less than six minutes of a game, um, you know, that, that some of those guys weren't up to snuff. But, um, yeah, and, and McPherson, you're right, Dan. I mean, McPherson is people, people laugh and say, ah, you kickers, kickers aren't football players. Hey, they put points on the board now. They're, they're hugely important. And when, when you have a guy that as soon as you cross the 50-yard line, the opponent, not only you, your special teams coach, Darren Sims, but the opponent has to start to think about, oh, Jesus, they're in scoring range. That's a huge weapon. That's a huge deal. You know, we we saw that when we're facing Baltimore. Look, every look at year. every year facing Baltimore Ravens. It's like <laughs> Justin Tucker can hit from monster yardage. Now, got somebody that can do it for us as well. That, that's a that's a big factor. Question from Greg: Could Thaddeus Moss play a big role this season? Potentially, um, you know, if there were injury, um, it, it'd be interesting to see if if they lose a tight end. Depending on which tight end they lose, who's who's the one? Shrek or Moss? If it's a receiving tight end, probably, you know, if, if lose a guy that is, is more of a factor in the passing game, probably Moss. If it's a guy that, you know, you need to have a little bit more, um, a little bit more oomph in the, to block on the, on the edge, you know, it might be Shrek. Um, that would be interesting to see. But obviously, Thaddeus Moss is the uh, possessor of a ringing endorsement from his college quarterback. And that, that holds some weight. So when, you, when, when Joe Burrow has the faith and the confidence in Thaddeus Moss that he articulated, uh, the coaches believe it, obviously, and it's a factor. So I think, I think if, it's, uh, if it's somewhere at some point in the season and you have a stretch of games where we need a tight end that has, has to be a receiving option, a receiving threat, I think he's probably a guy they're really going to look at hard. Question from Governor Chief. What are your expectations for Darius Hodge, and how many sacks can he rack up? Boy, that's that's what a, what a story! What a story that is! 
a guy, uh, undrafted linebacker from Marshall, who we're talking about how many sacks is he going to rack, mm. r- you know, rack up as an edge rush guy uh, for the Bengals? I honestly, if all the edge rush guys were healthy that we talked about, he'd be a practice squad guy. And uh, and really, when I think about it, that's where he probably has the best fit because you can develop him. It, it'll be interesting to see how he responds going against true studs on a regular basis if he does have to go in there and provide significant pressure. And right now, you know, he's one of five guys. I mean, he's, he's one of the guys that, uh, that you know, I, I think he's probably going to have to fill some sort of a role for 12 to 15 snaps coming off of that edge. And if he's, uh, if he's out there for 15 snaps a game, you know, and, and is accumulating a couple of hundred rushes, I don't know. Shoot, could he, could he get as many as seven sacks? Possible. Possible. But I think uh, I think now we're I think now we're talking about best case scenarios. Obviously, this question comes from Awuje the Goat, but the question is not about Chidabe Awuje. How long do you see Khalid Kareem being out? Whew. I, you know, I, I think I think Kareem will be out three weeks. You know, I, I think three weeks. Uh, is, he's on injury reserve. He can come back after three weeks. So I think that, that that is a time frame that, uh, that makes some sense. He's got a labrum problem. It wasn't torn where it had to be repaired surgically. So he just has to rest it and rehab it and, and, and those good things. But, you know, it's the opposite shoulder from the shoulder that he has some arthritis that he deals with in. So, I mean, now it's like, geez, both your shoulders? When you're a, when you're a rush guy and you have to – you know, you have to use your upper body, grab, pull, swim, rip, all these different moves. Your shoulders are vitally important. There's no question about it. But um, he may miss the first quarter of the season, and uh, hopefully he hopefully he comes back. But have you ever seen a situation, Dan, where, where two guys like Osai and Kareem in, in the first preseason game against Tampa, Osai in the first series makes an impression that's just unbelievable. I mean, he beats a tackle that gave up one sack last year and he beats him and sacks the goat, and then Kareem in uh, in the in the game, um, the third preseason game, blocks a pass and has a sack on first and third down, the first series, you know, of, of the football game against the Miami Dolphins, and then they're both hurt. I mean, it's just it's just unbelievable. It's like it's like man, this black cloud. When is it going to go away? Both of these guys have have extreme potential coming off the edge and. Right now, the Bengals are going to be missing one for the season and one for maybe 25% of the season. This question comes from Joby Wan. As we enter year three of Zach Taylor's tenure as our head coach, have you noticed any changes in the culture of the team or locker room? And how about the culture of the organization in general? I, I do think that uh, that the players that he, that he brought in since he's been head coach, and of course that's not all his decision, uh, it's Duke Tobin, the scouting department, the family. Everybody's involved with these personnel decision-making process. But the fact that um, so many of them are captains, so many of them have been captains of their high school and college football teams, so many of them have football intelligence and overall raw intelligence and leadership qualities as a result of it, I do think that um, that you go around through that locker room there's there's no lot of, not a whole lot of turds sitting around in that locker room. I mean, there's some pretty good people in there, and and I think that I think that the caliber of person 
not only football player um, has has really increased, you know, and it's it's one thing to be a solid citizen. You still have to play. You still have to be able to make plays. And uh, <laughs> that was Paul Brown's big big message. Um, you you might be a fine human being. We might like you a lot, but if you can't play, you're not going to make the team. <laughs> so you, you still have to go out there and be able to perform. So um, obviously the the combination of the two is the best-case scenario. And I, th- I do think um, that, that the caliber of player, the depth of the caliber of player and the, and the caliber of person I think has improved. I really do. And I think, I think it's, there is a pretty good culture in the locker room. Um, and I think, you know, Zach is – is pr- primarily responsible for that, but there's no substitute for winning. Didn't Phil Sam tell you many years ago not to use the term turd in broadcasting? He did. <laughs> this he is did. a podcast. All bets are off. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he was. It was. It was classic. I used it, and he's nice working with you. I'm like, huh? <laughs> he had me spell it. You know that. That was the thing. It was like, I'm like, oh no. Was, oh boy, that was a quick trip. We like to end with a wild card question. This one comes from local filmmaker Cam Miller. What's your take on Bird's Band, the original band of the Cincinnati Bengals? I'm trying to think of uh, of his first name. George. George. And his, uh, Shirley was the daughter. And Shirley Bird obviously, uh, you know, held on, kept up to tradition as such. Honestly, <laughs> I was never an enormous fan. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest, um, you know, I thought at first, my, my wife thought it was cute. And, you know, that's, that's, I think that's very, and I think a lot of the Cincinnati fans, there was a, there was a you know, soft spot in their heart for um, the, the original Birds band. But um, I could have done without it, <laughs> to be quite honest. But at that, that stage of, uh, of, of the week, and that's game day, I am, I'm not really... I'm not looking at anything. I'm not listening to anything. I did have an ability to, to just, I mean, laser focus, zone in, and I felt like I had to. I, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't going to allow any distractions, you know, to be a reason that uh, that I didn't, you know, try, try to execute at the at the highest level I possibly could. So, I I, I couldn't even tell you the the. Uh, Hear the Bengals growling. I do remember hearing that some, but that's about that's about the extent of it. I, I I didn't hear much else. Well, George Bird did write that, so he hit it out of the park. He did. with the Bengals theme song. He did. He did hit that hit that out of the park. That that when, when it uh, when it sustains itself for as long as it did and has, uh, then you then you know you've got something going. Speaking of hear that Bengal growling, Jay Morrison of the Athletic recently wrote a great story about the history of the song, and I highly recommend reading it if you haven't done so already. Several years ago, I asked Bengals president Mike Brown this question about that song. When Bengals growl plays on the sound system at Paul Brown Stadium after a touchdown, you know what I mean here, that Bengal growling, mean and angry, do you sing along or hum along? I can't sing. <laughs> I can't dance either. <laughs> but I'm very fond of that song because George Bird wrote it. And George Bird was our uh, entertainment director. That was the title. Uh, but he was a neighbor of ours dating back to when I was five years old and younger living in Maslin, Ohio. He was the director of the Maslin 
high school band, which was phenomenal. And my dad had real respect for George, and he brought him to Cleveland when we were doing the Browns and then down here. Uh, let me tell you a story about George that always amused me. He would tell the performer, the person who was going to sing the national anthem, to make it at a fast clip. None of this so-called creativity, please. <laughs> yes. uh, they would uh, look at him and say, yes, sir, and then go about doing just what they wanted. But he had the answer to that. In those days, we had a band. He directed the band, and he didn't care how they did it. He did it the way he wanted to do it. It went at that pace, and they better keep up or they were left behind. He was a wonderful uh, musician. He wrote that song. I think it's uh, a, a great song. My wife can sing it. She's pretty musical. She can sing well. I think it's a, a great song. People can say what they want. Oh, it's corny, they say. To heck with them. It's a great song, and I'm proud of it. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. With the regular season set to begin next week, you'll hear plenty of football analysis on this podcast. But I have something a little different for you today. Five offbeat questions that I asked each of the Bengals coordinators. Up first, offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. If you had a time machine and could attend any sporting event in history, what would it be and why? I think just because I love the history of football, I think it would be pretty fun to go watch the first Super Bowl. Just for, for that simple fact that it's it's kind of what gives us gives us all our living, and it's a, the beginning of, of what it's become now. And I think that would be kind of cool to be at that game in the stands, watching it as a spectator. You know, I think, I truthfully think, probably watching Secretariat in person would have been pretty awesome. Um, and I know that wasn't that long ago, but it, you know, it was before I was born, so um, that would have been pretty neat. I'll go with those two. I, <laughs> but now I'm going to be thinking about it all day, like what, what else would I want to go to? If you could have lunch with any athlete in history, who would it be and why? This is still possible for me to do. But I would say because I have never, I'm trying to think of where to start. When I was a sophomore in high school, by as an undersized six-foot quarterback, my kind of hero and idol at the time was Drew Brees, who was at Purdue. And I wore 15 when I was in high school. He wore at Purdue. I still remember him holding that rose in his mouth when they wanted to get to go to the Rose Bowl. And uh, he was kind of like my childhood and, and childhood in my high school, like my kind of hero that I that I'd always admired. And I love watching him play. I still love I watched him play for his whole career. Love watching the tape. But I have never met Drew Brees. And we've played the Saints a few times, and I, I just never went up to go introduce myself. But uh, that would be one. That would be one that I would say. I never had a chance to tell Drew Brees that you were my childhood idol uh, I'd love to sit down and have lunch with them so I think that that's what I'll go with for that for that one it's interesting because Joe Burrow says that that was his favorite quarterback to watch so the guy you're coaching you you two share the quarterback you admire we share an admiration for him and and, and deservingly so um, you know obviously I had a chance to work with Peyton Manning so that's a I get I had lots of years of, of being with one of the you know I get Hall of Fame all-time quarterback um, but Drew Brees was one that I never had a chance. I've never had a chance to talk to him, and I think that would be a fun. That'd be fun to go have lunch with Drew Brees and, and tell him how much I 
how much I appreciated watching him play. What coach that you played for had the biggest impact on you? Probably uh, my high school coaches. Um, Bob Latticer is a head coach at Dealers at High School, and then our quarterbacks coach there, uh, Mark Pinella. Uh, he, he just actually just recently retired um, from coaching, and uh, those were the two people that it probably, you know, the most impressionable age that I was probably most formed by. Just philosophy, all of those types of things. They they were a big part of of what I believe football is supposed to be, and, and all of those things. So I'll go with uh, Bob Latticer and Mark Pinella. Last thing, have you binge-watched a TV show? And if so, what's your favorite? Binge-watched a few of them this summer. Um, I love Ted Lasso. That's a great show. Um, I'm excited for the second season. And then I did binge-watch Yellowstone this summer, which was phenomenal. That was That's an excellent show. Um, and I, those are the two that I spent most this summer. Those are the two I watched this summer. Uh, I'm also, I really like Peaky Blinders, too. Those are, those are kind of my, I like the the intense shows. Are you going to put a believe sign up in your office in honor of Ted Lasso? I should. I saw somebody had a t-shirt with one. I almost, I was got to, I got to find that. I might buy it and start wearing it. I'm with him on Ted Lasso. In fact, I've been thinking of buying some Richmond Greyhounds gear. If you don't watch the show, that's the fictional soccer team that Ted coaches. Up next, defensive coordinator, Lou Anarumo. All right. If you had a time machine, and could attend any sporting event in history. Not necessarily football, although it obviously could be, but what would that sporting event be? I would probably say uh, the Miracle on Ice. I mean, I've watched the movie, I watched it. I was old enough to, but I was young. And just to be in that stadium to witness that, I think that would be pretty, pretty awesome. That's my answer as well. If you could have lunch with any athlete in history, who would it be and why? Well, I'll just I'll play some favorite New York favoritism here. Probably be Derek Jeter, uh, just because again, you know, you watch the guy over 20 years, uh, and all he did was win, and he did it the right way. And to be able to ask him some questions about that, that would be that'd be pretty cool. Who was your favorite athlete when you were a kid, and why? Well, probably you go. When I was young, I would say probably Lawrence Taylor. You know, I was a huge Giant fan growing up, and um, I mean, one of the best defenders ever. Um, so I would say LT for sure. And I, I remember chanting LT a lot when I was a kid. So probably be him. You'd like to have him right now. Oh my God, <laughs> everybody would. <laughs> what coach that you played for had the biggest imp- impact on you? Uh, my high school coach, uh, Al Paterzo, um, just from uh, overall being a young kid, uh, teaching toughness, and uh, was a great teacher of the game and uh, was the winningest football coach in New York City history. Um, so to this day, we're still best of friends, and uh, so it will be him. Have you binge-watched a TV show? And if so, what's your favorite? Yeah, um my wife had me pretty busy this summer, so there wasn't much TV watching. Um, so I really didn't do uh, much of that. Um, well, Game of Thrones. Oh, Game of, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Game of Thrones. It was damn good. <laughs> now, I'm not usually into that stuff, but that was good. My wife and I also binge-watched Game of Thrones. When the villains on that show get what's coming to them, 
It's about as satisfying as TV gets. Last but not least, special teams coordinator Darren Simmons. If you had a time machine and could attend any sporting event in history, it doesn't necessarily have to be football, although it could be, what would that event be and why? Probably would have said one of the games uh, from my dad's high school year of football. Um, you know, I think he was a good high school player. He never got to play in college um, because uh, my granddad died um, not long after um, he graduated from high school, but he never got to play in college. So it probably would have been one of the games my dad played in high school, one of the football games. Was he a good athlete? Yeah, he was. I think he, like he was. Um, you know, like I said, just because uh, my, my uh, family were farmers, um, he kind of had to take over the family farm, so he never got the opportunity to, uh, um, you know, go on and play um, after that. So it probably would have been that. That's great. If you could have lunch with any athlete in history, who would it be and why? That's a good one, too. Joe Montana. And Joe Montana was, you know, when I was growing up, was, was the guy. He was probably the Tom Brady of this era. And, uh, you know, all the success that he had in, in San Francisco and led all those teams. Uh, not only in San Francisco, but he even had success in Kansas City, you know, after that, which is closer to where I'm from. Um, it would probably be him. This could be the same answer, but not necessarily. Who was your favorite athlete when you were a kid? This is, this is close. Probably George Brett. Um, I was a, a Royals fan, again, being from the Midwest, being from where I was from. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was the time the Royals were a, a solid team. You know, they've kind of been through their share of ups and downs, but um, it'd probably be George Brett. What coach that you played for had the biggest impact on you? Um, Glenn Mason, my high school, or my, excuse me, my high school, my college coach at Kansas. Um, you know, going to KU, uh, we were a team. It, we were kind of on the verge whenever I went there of uh, turning the corner. Kansas had been such a, a downtrodden program for so long um, that they had went to a bowl game uh, in 93, um, the year before I got there. And so they're just starting to trend upwards. And I, I think the one thing why I say that is because he really, um, really pushed the players there to be better than what they thought they could. I think that's the job of every coach. But I, I think at Kansas we probably weren't the most talented group. You know, this is the my senior year was the last year of the Big Eight, and so I think that he got the most out of the talent level of that team. And uh, and we were, we were able to have a good season my senior year in, in uh, '95. I think we were 10 and two. You know, we finished like ninth or tenth in the country. And uh, I really respect the way he, how hard he pushed guys um, to excel and to really to believe in himself. So, I, I, you know, he really, a lot of the foundations and stuff of, um, that I even use today are a result of him because I played for him. Um, and then Scott O'Brien would be another one. I never played for him, but I worked under him. And, and so a lot of the, you know, everything that I'm about is what they were about. Last one. Have you ever binge watched a TV show? And if so, what's your favorite? <laughs> I've binged watched a couple of them. Um, the last one that I binged watched, it was through the pandemic, was Game of Thrones. I always heard about Game of Thrones. I never watched any of them. Um, but then I would get up early every morning before the rest of my family was up to watch it. it, it it's not probably the most uh, family-worthy <laughs> show to watch. Uh, that's why I'd have to get up early to do it. But I, I just I couldn't believe the... Uh, outdoor scenes some of the graphic scenes you know it, it was just a, it was a crazy show um 
The other one is uh, Ozark, all on Netflix. I'm a big Ozark, big, big Ozark um, person. So I, I've, I've watched all those. Um, the other one that, that uh, I've probably binge-watched before, too, is Yellowstone um, with Kevin Costner. Yep. I, I really enjoy that one, too. Um, probably those three are the ones I could say. I, I'm, not, I'm not a big binge-watcher, though. I don't, it's hard to find the time to sit down in front of the TV for a long time, but those would be three. I haven't watched Yellowstone yet, but uh, I can vouch for the other two. Yeah, but Yellowstone's really good. I mean, it's it. Uh, Kevin Costner's a f- fabulous actor, and, and I think everybody on that show is good. I, I've been sitting there waiting. I, I thought the next season was supposed to come out in June. It hadn't been released yet, so I don't know what the Paramount, I think it's on Paramount Network, what the holdup is, but I can't wait to see the next season. My thanks to Brian, Lou, and Darren, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.